Reconciliation Rising is funded in part by the Carnegie Corporation of New York and brought to you by Kevin Aberesk, Margaret Jacobs, Gabby Mace, and Dalen Zagurski. Renee Sansusi, a citizen of the Omaha Nation of Nebraska, and Dr. Sarah Thomas, a non-Native education specialist, work together to bring attention to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, and to promote Indigenous food sovereignty, a humane immigration policy, and racial healing and understanding. Listen in to their conversation on the importance of creating decolonized spaces. Well, Kevin, and I would just want to thank you so much for, you know, being here and agreeing to be interviewed. And I was just excited to read your bios. I'm just, it's, it's really a pleasure and an honor to, to be able to interview you. Thank you. Yes. So, yeah, it's a, an honor to be here and to be, you know, invited with my friend to think about uh, our work together, our relationship. Yeah. Great to have you both. It'd be good if you both introduced yourself just very briefly here, and uh, maybe that's a good way to start. Okay. Well, uh, I'll say good afternoon to everyone. My Umaha name is Sacred Horsewoman, uh, and my English name is Renee Sansasi. I'm a member of the Omaha tribe of Nebraska, and I'm also a member of the Standing for Nebraska uh, board. And I work with, uh, oh my gosh, now I'm like, I, you know, I do a number of things there. And uh, I guess part of this work is with uh, social justice, as well as, you know, all the other work that I do. It's all included under uh, Standing for Nebraska. And uh, I'm Dr. Sarah San Thomas, and uh, again, just such an honor to be invited and to be with the four of you. I mean, it's just it's a it's it's such an incredible opportunity. I um, I've been in education for 30 years, um, first as a high school teacher, uh, English teacher, and debate coach, um, which meant I also drove a 20 passenger van um, at strange hours of the day and night all over <laughs> all over the plains uh, and then found my way into eventually into higher ed. Um, so the last 10 years I've been uh, helping with pre-service teaching in that area. Um, and so then Standing for Nebraska became kind of a natural extension to a uh, lifetime of advocating in the realm of education for these issues, social justice issues, and alongside multi-marginalized populations um, in a variety of ways, uh, trying more so to be an activist within the institution, uh, pushing for curriculum change, um, and in English, you know, it's, it's still, we're very, uh, Eurocentric, uh, reinforcing of white supremacy through the literature selections and et cetera. So, uh, thank you for that. I sure, sure appreciate that, doctor. Um, you know, one of the reasons that, that 
uh, seems like we're all talking today. Um, and please, please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but um, uh, seems like part of this has to do with George Floyd and you know the the murder of George Floyd by uh, Minnesota officer Derek Chauvin um, last year, and uh, and everything that came after that. You know, all of the uh, social unrest and and um, the protests and the calls for social justice across the country that occurred after that. Um, is that is that how Stand In for Nebraska got started, or, or you know, had the organization begun before that? Yeah, um, I, I think I can speak to that, and certainly Renee um, can can add her thoughts as well. But um, it, it really, and the reason, kind of, why I mentioned the educational path um, is that that's kind of what brought us to Stand In for Nebraska, and so. Um, Carol Flora, who's a social studies teacher at Lincoln High, um, I at the time I was serving as uh, her mentor during a uh, a master's program at Doan in leadership, and so I was her field mentor, and um, and we were looking for a variety of opportunities to um, develop educational leadership. Uh, beyond again, you know, the traditional context, and um, and and do more in the community. And one of the things that is, you know, a historic issue and unsurprising is that, um, you know, eighty percent of the teachers are white and female, mm-hmm. and um, so you know, because school is inhospitable to a lot of you know, most BIPOC students. Uh, of course, they're not going to flock to want to teach in those spaces, right? And so if we are going to diversify the workforce, um, Carol and I strongly believe that we needed to lead in a way that would help teachers pre and pre-service teachers, in my case, work on self-identifying as community agents and connectors and um so one of the things we noticed at that time was that uh, 2018, a National Teacher of the Year, Mandy Manning, uh, was going around the country, uh, you know, advancing immigration justice issues. Uh, she was an ELL teacher in Washington. And um, so, she, and at the time, of course, the family separation policy that came to be. And um, I will say from a pre-service educator standpoint, um, teacher educator standpoint, and just being in the, yeah, I'm in the classroom a lot. I'm in the field a lot. So all the high, you know, local high schools, middle schools, and a lot of graduates who are teaching now. And it was at a, it was a level of uh, devastation for my former and current students and for me that just was at a new kind of level of we are not only losing our democracy, but we are, we are, we are observed, we are witnesses to atrocity. And so Mandy um, rallied teachers of the year across the United States um, to come to El Paso and to do a really highly publicized march and, brought like the leads of the teachers unions across the nation. And it was a really powerful experience. Carol and I went and one of the commitments as the, as the experience closed, one of the commitments was to, you know, 
uh, one of the, the, the uh, kind of rallying points involved our commitments that we would bring back to our community. Um, what are we going to do beyond this space? And so then Standard for Nebraska started mostly as a, uh, a focus on working with faith communities who would participate with us to push back on the toxic narratives about immigrants at the time. Um, and then it, you know, over time, as more connections were made and relationships were built, it made sense to focus more on human, you know, a variety of human rights issues and intersectional justice. Great, great. Um, I'd love it if the two of you would be willing to talk about how you met each other. Okay, well, um, you know, with everything that had been going on, I would say throughout, uh, for me throughout, I think since uh, 2016, you know, since Standing Rock, and then the MMIW movement, and then, you know, into how this, you know, moved in, how I, you know, became a part of uh, Standing for Nebraska. My work was always volunteering. You know, I, you know, all the things that I had been doing were like, you know, places I, you know, that I, you know, I came at it from the heart because, you know, this to me was like, this was important that, that I address, you know, along with um, my colleagues and, you know, all the other women that I was working with over the years that we began to address these issues. And uh, for Native women, most of the time we, we lack support, you know, we lack support from all areas. No one wants to, you know, get in, get in, I guess you'd say on the ground level with us. No one wants to get their hands dirty because, you know, there's a fear that once you start to associate with, you know, social activism and, you know, this kind of, you know, the kind of roles that I was playing, but also, you know, the women around me were playing that uh, you're going to be labeled, you know, you're going to be blacklisted on and on. When I met Sarah, it was like uh, Drew Messenger, you know, somewhere along the way, I think somebody told me it had to be Nancy, Nancy Ingen Wadim. And Nancy's been one of my mentor, best friends for like the last 20 years. So I remember her saying, oh, Sarah, Sarah Thomas has been trying to reach you. And, you know, I was like, okay, do I know Sarah? You know, she goes, well, you will meet her. She wants to meet you. So this began, I think, like in the fall of 2019, maybe somewhere. And by then, I remember I was receiving a lot of information about what Standing for Nebraska was doing. So even though as I was kind of monitoring what was happening, I still was like, okay, I don't know what they're about. So I'm, you know, I'm cautious. I'm like, I don't want to, you know, do any, make any missteps because I've been there before and, you know, have been, uh, like I said, blacklisted. Everything that you could think of has already happened to me. So I'm very cautious about who I involve myself with. But once I met Sarah and once uh, I got to know her, then I was like, okay, she is unlike uh, any other uh, white woman professional that I've met. Uh, her sincerity is what won me over. And a lot of times when we talk about, you know, allyships, we're, we're often focused on, you know, how, let's see, 
it's almost like uh, the definition of what being a good ally is, is often misconstrued. That's how I see it. And in this case, I felt that, you know, I have, you know, my own, I trust my own instincts, as they say, my gut feelings. And this case, I felt like, no, I'm not wrong. You know, she's, you know, she is a genuine person. So uh, we continued, you know, getting to know each other through all the activities, all the events that were happening in 2019, you know, the rallies that were happening, especially around immigration justice and, you know, all these other things. I mean, there was so much happening even then. And then we became, um, uh, I think, uh, one of the rallies, and I don't even remember which one now, but that's when we started going to the uh, Standing for Nebraska meetings. And then that's when I was invited to be a part of there and uh, be a part of the organization. And then I accepted. I said, okay. Sarah was talking about decentering a lot. And for me, I'm like, I'm so used to being um, involved with decolonization. And I'm not used to white people talking about decentering, you know, decentering, you know, themselves out of the whole, you know, uh, mm -hmm. picture, so to speak. So for me, it was like, okay, I need to understand what this is about. But in this uh, relationship, now we've, you know, uh, we've talked about it a number of times, and we were in the process um, right before COVID, you know, struck last year, but we were in the process of creating a more formal relationship. And when I talk about formal, I'm talking about uh, from a native uh, perspective, you know, how I form relationships with people is, you know, through our, our uh, spiritual ways, our ceremonies. So we were going to come together like that. And then of course COVID came in and we weren't, we weren't able to do that. So maybe now as things are starting to settle, uh, we'll, we'll get back to that place again where we can sit down and talk about how to form such a relationship. Um, not so much like, you know, like allyship, that the way people talk about allyship now, but an actual relationship where we begin to address one another as relatives. Because for me, when I've taken relatives, uh, and these are people, all nations that I have as relatives, uh, there is a much better understanding between us and we're able to form a bond based on trust as well as, you know, this is, you know, our agreements, you know, this is how we're going to serve. We're going to serve together and these are our roles. I had a, a question about the name Stand In for Nebraska. How did you choose that name? What, what does that mean to you? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I think it actually came at, at the first. So we um, we started advocating uh, with signs and our our dear partners at Goldenrod Printing um, would, you know, help us with pushing back on those toxic narratives that, that I mentioned around immigration and immigrants and to remind our community that, you know, as Mary Pfeiffer said in her, with the title of her book in the middle of everywhere, you know, that our, that Lincoln as a community has had historic, uh, not sustained, but there were, have been moments where 
you know, it is storied as the narrative is that it's an immigrant friendly community. And so we thought that um, we could really draw from that and remind that serve as reminders kind of on the street corners at church, you know, in front of churches who would partner with us. And so um, I think the question, like it was an early question, why in front of, I think the Unitarian Church, it was, you know, why, why are you here? Well, we're standing in for Nebraska. We're, you know, doing a representational, uh, making an ep- a representational effort to uh, be louder and to remind and to address we talked about uh, kind of Brian Stevenson's four pillars for changing the world. And so you change, you challenge uh, to change toxic narratives, you get inconvenienced, um, you, you work to stay hopeful. And um, I'm forgetting the last one, but just that particularly those changing the, the narrative, the, the changing the narrative effort was a big focus and, and to educate too. a lot of our signs included some educational information that we thought was just getting intentionally buried or just, you know, it was just absent from our state about what was going on, um, not only at the borders, but with ICE, you know, across Nebraska. So the leadership of uh, standing for Nebraska is all women. Yes and mostly women of color? I would say so, you know, uh, probably it's like a, a good mixture. Can you tell us about some of the specific programs and things that you've developed through the Stand In for Nebraska? I, you know, first of all, I guess what I can speak from is like, uh, I'll speak from a spiritual platform first of all and from this base you know from uh, spirituality you know all my all my teachers you know beginning from way back in the mid 80s to to the present uh each teacher that i've had you know always talked about uh how we are supposed to maintain good relationships with everybody around us and even when that's not possible, even when I've had to walk away and give away up, you know, give up certain relationships, it's been a, a process involving forgiveness and understanding. And it was always the focus on understanding. So understanding in a, you know, I guess in a way of description is like, uh, it involves having that compassion. So we're not supposed to be judgmental about what you know, what's happening. So when we come into these systems of, you know, I always say systems of oppression, uh, and we're bringing our, our traditional cultural values to, to help, oftentimes that resistance we meet is because, you know, we're, we're seeing as the troublemakers, like I said, we're the ones who are like, no, you can't do that here. You, know, you can't bring that here. That won't, you know, that doesn't serve our purpose. So, and again, I say the uh, the purpose of white supremacy thinking, white supremacist thinking. So we started um, talking a lot about, we'd have a lot of meetings, uh, Sarah and uh, Colette, Colette Yellowrobe and I, 
and we talk about MMIW, we talk about women's roles, and then we, you know, go further from that and try to see how we could, you know, how this would begin to work in uh, standing for Nebraska. So we, we created one of the circles um, and it was, uh, we, it took us a while to come up with the name because we were like, okay, we want to give it a good name. Uh, so we'll call it um, Sacred Fire, you know, uh, Truth and Integrity Project. And it kind of goes along with that, you know, truth and reconciliation, you know, kind of, you know, that kind of momentum. But in this way, it's like, uh, for me, integrity, you know, being truthful is like, that's the foundation of what I have to live by. You know, when I say what I live by, I mean, as, you know, as a spiritual, uh, I guess, proponent or a spiritual practitioner, you know, I'm, I live by the laws that are set by our people. You know, I'm not living by, you know, the white man's laws of whatever they see, however they interpret it. I'm, I'm already bound by these, uh, these laws and ways of life, and I can't deviate from them in a sense of meaning that, you know, my life can, I guess you could say, I can live my life the way I want, but I have to live with it within the, the way that, you know, these, uh, these laws, sacred laws are already established that have been there for thousands of years. You know, we've done work around uh, hashtag MMIWG. We've done... Um, uh, Hey, could you, um, some of our listeners won't know what MMIW is, so would you okay. explain that a little bit? Okay, so uh, hashtag MMIWG is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And what this work about is, uh, what this work is about uh, is, you know, advocacy, advocacy about uh Violence, you know, creating awareness about violence against Native women, uh, which is like, you know, women, Native women are 12 times more likely to be murdered than any other woman of color in, in the United States. And that's just in the United States alone. We're not even talking about the other surrounding countries. So uh, MMIWG um, I would say, you know, I when I started to see what was happening, this was, you know, I was watching mainly what was happening in Canada, you know, and then uh, when I went to work for the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center, and that was in uh, 2008, uh, that's when I started to learn about uh, human trafficking and Native women and families. And for me, it was like a, a complete education you know, this is like, I was learning everything about the history of human trafficking and how Native families are impacted, especially uh, single parent families, mothers and their children, and how vulnerable they are uh, to human traffickers. So when I started to learn about that, that's when I really started to learn more about MMIWG. So for me, it was like a process of learning and relearning about what this meant, you know, the impacts that, you know, I felt throughout my life that, you know, I never put the two together, you know, until I had uh, more of a broader understanding of, you know, what MMIWG stands for. So for me, it was like, okay, 
this is like, this is heavy work. Uh, however, when um, I know so many women who have impact, been impacted by violence in their families, within their communities and have had no support whatsoever. I also fell into that category. So uh, as such, I, you know, when I, once I started to learn everything about violence against native women and MMIWG, and when, you know, I came to, you know, came to Lincoln, uh, my family and I arrived here, you know, homeless. So we were in a shelter uh, here in Lincoln and before we got into housing. And in that process, you know, I, I knew that we were extremely vulnerable. And if uh, I didn't do everything just so, you know, in the way that I was instructed to, to carry everything out, you know, and when I talk about that, I'm, the instruction, I'm talking about how uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, you know, treated us and made us, you know, uh, made us follow their way, their regulations. And that's when I talk about, you know, whether it's uh, DHHS policies, the school policies and housing policies, they're all in league with one another. And it's like, wow, this is a, this is a very real fear that I live in, but a lot of families, a lot of women live like this, not just native women, but all women of color who are living in poverty. So, by addressing these issues now, you know, with these projects that we're starting with standing for Nebraska, you know, just like um, I know that with Nourishing the Plains, before it became Nourishing the Plains, you know, there was like different facets, you know, it was like different, uh, I guess, kind of like uh, uh, experimental moves, I guess. I don't know what to call them, but, you know, uh, they're, try this and, you know, let's try this and let's try this. Now, now uh, we got this vision, you know, now there's, uh, it's become nourishing the plains. And I think uh, part of it is that there is that understanding that a lot of families are uh, going without food. Did you have anything you wanted to add, Sarah? Uh, well, I, I, I just, um, whenever, I have the, the fortune to, you know, sort of be enraptured in Renee's thinking. And um, I just continue to think about the deep integrity and the values and practices alignment that she brings to, well, wherever she is, that's just who she is. And it's, you know, one of the reasons I mentioned that she is, um, such a central shining force uh, within this board uh, of women uh, to, I mean, it, she is so centrally important in terms of why, um, why this organization is, you stands to really have longevity. It's that it's, she lives the integrity, she lives the values and practices alignment um, and so she can model that and it's contagious and, um, and people feel welcomed. And so I would say one of the other things that, she, you know, and I, I, I wish I could be a fly on the wall, but um, she's facilitating a racial healing group 
And so we're expanding our educational programming this year. That's one of our big focuses. And, you know, she and I obviously uh, really feel a, a kinship in education. And so, and a number of, of the folks in Stanford for Nebraska do as well, who are lead, helping to lead. And so we're really drawing on that, drawing forth. And so we have a community, uh, uh, BIPOC community that uh, Renee facilitates toward where there's a, 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 a special emphasis on healing. Uh, racial healing. And um, while I facilitate some study groups using the same text, uh, or one of the same texts, uh, the racial healing handbook, it is a healing process. But I would say as Renee and I were just recently talking about it, it is a, it is more of a discovery of uh, white, of what white identity, white culture means. Um, a lot of white people don't think they have a culture. And um, it's like a default culture. It's, it's because it's dominant. It just is. And it's not a it's not a culture. And so um, that that's a really uh, like, and, I, and I'm not saying the folks participating in the group come at that level. I've had a lot of students who have said these things. I'm sure, uh, Margaret, you have had as well, um, where there's so much unknowing around their whiteness, their ancestry, accurate depictions of history, deep understanding of history through multiple perspectives. I mean, that's just not afforded them. And, and nor was it to me either. It's, it's like I'm self-taught when it comes, mostly when it comes to um, deepened and full, accurate perspectives on history. And so, um, so you know, there is in, in my study groups, well, in fact, this week, we're sharing our white identity stories. And so we're writing as a way to kind of review some things that we've learned, but then also as a way to really claim uh, an identity uh, and under and a, and a, a more solid understanding of white culture um, through this process toward becoming then mobilized and more confident as anti-racist uh, white co-conspirators. And that's where the book takes us. And so, um, you know, there's that common, you know, important question, white people, where are you? Where are you? You know, what you, you're not showing up. And I, I feel I've learned a lot about, about why white people aren't showing up um, it, through lots of different places, including these, these study groups. And so one of the things I think Stand-In for Nebraska can continue to support is a scaffolding process that involves um, a community-based uh, reading uh, with that and dialogic space where white people can do their work, you know, and not, not create a uh, uh, burden for people of color to teach them. The white fragility aspects are very real and, you know, and, and, and real for me too. Like I, you're, if you're white, you have fragilities, you just do. And, um, 
and and one of mine is around like it's 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 my chink in the armor it's like if i'm called a white savior um and i know i have been i know that that's still a thing it's it's a very it's a very complex thing um but i'm like oh that's the last thing i want to be called but okay i need to also look at that and so we just can like the <laughs> we we have to wince together we have to be like ah i did this i feel awful i feel what how could i have done that differently so it's it's um it's a lot of and and how do we stay together in hope because 90 minutes a week we're really drilling into very um candid unvarnished conversations, direct conversations um, around developing the ability to be more emboldened and more confident uh, anti-racist co-conspirators. And, um, and, and just to work on that, like just trying that on, you know, for, and, and really getting more comfortable and understanding that, um, Risk aversion is one white cultural pattern that we talk a lot about, very risk averse, um, very Nebraska nice, entrenched. Um, let's just be let's 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 be nice to racism and it'll go away. And so, you know, what does it mean to develop that warrior spirit and to, you know, understand that if you're yeah. And it's not, I mean, I, I, for many years was a people pleaser, you know, I was socialized as a white woman that way. I think pretty much all of us are. And so, um, you have to lose that and then also get comfortable with losing people in your life, uh, or maybe at the very least alienating them or having them wonder what's wrong with you and why are you so angry and uh, why can't you just, you know, what I want to have, it's, it's the white pleasantry thing, you know, like I can talk for five minutes about this, but then it becomes unpleasant. Mm -hmm. So for 90 minutes a week, we're like, let's be unpleasant and get used to that and be supportive and feel like inspired by that. Um, so it's been really interesting. And, and, um, but like I said, you know, Renee's work, while we use some similar literature and meet weekly and yeah, naturally it's really different, different work, um, more coming to terms with reality and okay, now what do we do about that and how do we, and so then the next iteration we're imagining, okay, there are 25 of us, so what's 2.0? Maybe we have accountability groups. Maybe we have research groups like Renee, Renee was mentioning, you know, where we're just uh, for a few months, we're just studying Native historians, you know, and um, because we know that that deep knowledge allows you to be more confident and more quickly responsive in those micro or macro aggressive situations where people are saying ignorant things, but maybe you don't know the history well enough to give a retort that, that is effective, you know? I was just going to ask about what it means to 
decolonize and, and decentralize in a way, but uh, you're certainly talking about that. And I really love the idea of the school. Like, you know, as a Native American man myself, it's it's been really difficult, quite honestly, to sort of decolonize myself in a way and start to, you know, trust my own instincts about things and um, listen to, uh, you know, my heart in some ways when it comes to certain issues that, that require me to be uh, you know, brave and, and take stances that, that won't please my neighbors here in Lincoln, Nebraska. And um, so I really love the idea of that school. It just seems like a great way to do it is starting so young with, with um, the youth there and, and really teaching them how to decolonize because their minds are more flexible, to be honest, you know, than, than mine and ours. Um, so I just think that's a great idea. Um, and many other thoughts you had about, you know, ways that I and others like me my, of my age group perhaps, you know, can, can work to decolonize and decentralize. Uh, I would sure appreciate that. Uh, I would say decentralizing with white people is, is a really hard thing. Um, and it's so inherent. It's like, and it's so invisible to us when it happens often. And um, so that too is something that I continue to really read about, uh, reflect on, and and plan strategically to, um, you know, to to move away from that that space. White people take up way too much space. <laughs> <laughs> like that's uh, you know. Duh, but, <laughs> but right. Well, I mean, so do just... so do men. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Thanks for saying that, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, or men. That's what I mean. Like, you should do this. You should do that. It's like, um, how about how about you can do that? <laughs> men are good at assigning, giving assignments to women. <laughs> in activism. I, I found that especially in activism. It's like, okay, yeah. well, my assignment list is pretty full. Um, <laughs> if you'd love to step in, do it. <laughs> How we uh, decolonize is begin to understand our conditioning. How we've been educated. You know, what, you know, what does that mean to, like, like what Sarah always says, decenter. So decentering, you know, white supremacist thinking. And I can imagine for uh, white people how uncomfortable that is. For me, it's just like, you know what? I, you know, if I had, if I had my own land, you know, and I had somewhere I could live, and I would be more than happy to just build my own home the way I want it to be built. I would be happy to have everything there, you know. I would, you know, I know enough about how to purify water and so forth. I would, I would know that how to uh, create systems to recycle water, recycle everything we have. And I still think that, I still dream about that. And I feel like that's what it would take, you know, for us to restore, uh, I guess, to heal, restore, you know, what we once had. It, it takes that, you know, having our land back. So in a way, when I think about reconciliation, I'm always bothered by that word because I feel like it's not enough. You know, reconciliation implies that we've all done something wrong. And I always feel like 
wait a minute, you know, we didn't do anything wrong here. We were already living within a system that we had, you know, that was, you know, perfectly coordinated with nature and with, you know, we had this way of living that didn't disrupt that natural system. But now we're not living that way anymore. And we've all been conditioned to, to be capitalists, you know, to think this way. So in order for us to go back to healing, we have to make that reconnection back to the land. And reconciliation isn't enough as it has to do with how do we restore, you know, this land base, but how do we restore these practices that were healing for, you know, the land, but for every, every other being that lives on this land. So if we continue at this breakneck speed that we've been living at with uh, capitalism, you know, there's, you know, like we keep getting reminded, there's not much time left, you know, that window is, you know, about, about closed now. So uh, for me, it's like decolonizing means we have to, you know, be able to break out of that thinking. And it is hard. I admit it. You know, I'm surrounded by all my books. I'm surrounded by everything that makes me comfortable in my home. And in order for me to decolonize, I probably won't have all these kinds of things around me. But I might have a whole different system I haven't even explored yet. So decolonizing also means exploring what will, what will actually work. Let's take this to another level and say, how, how do we heal? How do we heal from colonization? What does that really look like? How do we heal from racism? What does that really look like? And then how do we live in a future where, you know, as they say, you know, as we know as well, you know, water is going to become scarce. We're going to reach that point here if we're not, you know, aware of that already. And what does that mean? How are we going to survive? And uh, this to me is where I'm always trying to think about, okay, how would I, how would I, what would I need to do to survive, you know, if I'm living on limited water resources? And what does that mean for food? How do we grow our food without, you know, having enough water, that kind of thing? Um, so I, I go there, you know, in that, in that place. And I, I hope that when I'm working with native and non-native people, and they begin to learn about decolonization, that they're looking at it and, and realizing that it's, it's not so much that, you know, we're like, uh, I guess how uh, I've been seeing how uh, white people interpret it, like the work that Sarah's doing. I always see them saying, you're hating on white people. And I'm always like, wow, is that where, that's how they could think, you know? It's not about hating on anyone. It's about trying to find a way to love life. You know, how do we do that in a healthy way? So that's the work to me that I'm doing, you know, coming back to love, you know, how do we do that? How do we love mother earth again? Mm. It's, that's so incredible to hear Renee. Um, I was going to ask you whether you all see your work as reconciliation, but I think you've already answered that. I think that, you know, you see it more as decolonization and, and, um, but decolonizing I, and um, creating relationships. That's what it's about. Those relationships that would actually bring healing instead of, you know, 
instead of hating, you know, because that's what's killing us right now is that hate and that division that people believe in, like, you know, they're afraid. Great. Well, thank well, you um, both. Oh, um, how can our listeners uh, learn more about your organization or join your organization? Oh, well, we have the uh, website standinfornebraska.org, and we would love for any and all folks to feel warmly invited to, to join. We've got lots of community organizing circles, lots of direct action work that is described on the website. And, and you know, then there's always a place, hey, are you interested? You know, give us your name and contact information. So we, we try to make it easy for people to find um you know, very specific ways to plug in and do expressive work. Thank you. Sarah. Thank you both for joining us. And thank you for all the work that you do in our community here. Um, I truly believe that you're uh, reshaping people's um, ideas about uh, ways that we can work together and, and uh, achieve some level of social justice here in our community and beyond, I think creating a model, hopefully that that can be used in other places as well. So thank you so much for that. All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for all your time. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Right. Yep. <laughs> okay. See you later. Renee Sansusi is a citizen of the Omaha Nation of Nebraska and an educator, artist, and activist based in Lincoln, Nebraska. Dr. Sarah Thomas is a non-native educator and activist. Together they work for social justice, racial healing, and decolonization through Stand In for Nebraska. Learn more at standinfornebraska.org. Thank you for joining us on Reconciliation Rising, a project dedicated to natives and non-natives confronting our past and reimagining our future. If you'd like to learn more about our project, please check out our website at www.reconciliationrising.org. Dot org.